Hey listeners, have you ever watched on TV or maybe even live where you watch these guys on motocross bikes and they go off on the ramps and they do massive somersaults and they let go and, and then they grab the bike again and they land beautifully? Well, my guest is one of those guys. He's one of the guys that have been up there riding the bikes. And has he always caught the bike? Well, you're going to have to listen to this episode. You see, his name is Steve Summerfeld, and Steve is a great guy, and he is a professional freestyle motocross rider, and he's been doing that since 2004. But what he's actually been doing as well is he's actually been managing a lot of these athletes that do this, and so he's been also running events and so forth. He's a TV host and a commentator, and he's the author of a book called The Ultimate Guide to Freestyle. And uh, he's the host of a podcast called Riders Lounge Podcast. And he's a cool guy. So, things that he and I talked about in this episode have been really quite interesting. One thing we talked about, he's been working in the gig economy for quite a while. And then we, he said that he had to learn to walk again. So that might give you a little bit of a clue um, on what actually happened. But he's got a fascinating story. But one thing he talked about was he needs to have high standards at all times and leaders we need to have high standards at all times as well so fascinating discussion with steve great guy as i said before and so let's get into the episode so let's have a listen Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change. This is taking your leadership to another level by finding the balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Hey there, listeners. Welcome to another wonderful episode on the Leadership is Changing podcast. I have a great guest with me today. His name is Steve Summerfeld. Steve, massive welcome to you. Thank you very much for having me, mate. It's great to be on. I've just finished dinner, ran downstairs because we've got this one where I think pretty much exactly the opposite time zones at the minute. Yeah, whereabouts are you in the world today? So I'm living in the very north of Bavaria. I'm about five, ten kilometers from the old east-west German border hey. and been here for about seven years here. I had a one year in Berlin, but uh, yeah, just been living in Europe and traveling around. Came for a two month holiday and I'm still here. Two month holiday. Wow. And I can imagine the listeners right now going, wait a sec, his accent sounds like he's Australian. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So no, I grew up in Australia. I'm from a tiny town from a dairy farm, a couple of hours north of Brisbane. And spent probably a good 10 years in Brisbane at university and then uh, met my wife and then we, we had a house there for a while and then, and like I said, then we packed up and moved over to Europe for two months and then turned into six months, one year, and, and we're still here. Wow. And so I've given the uh, listeners a little bit of an introduction to you. You're a professional freestyle motocross rider since 2004. Tell us more about your background. Yeah, well, like I said, I, I grew up on a dairy farm, so motorbikes were just part of life. Got to chase the cows and get them in and milk the cows every day. 
And that was the reason why I didn't end up ra- go racing. All I wanted to do was race motocross. Yeah. Um, there was a local motocross down at Dundowran. I used to go and watch the Australian motocross championships there. Always wanted to do it, but the cows have to be milked morning and night every day. So dad said there was no chance to go, no chance, one, to buy a bike, and two, he definitely wasn't going to drive me there. So I just built jumps on the farm, and those jumps got bigger and bigger and bigger, and watched movies like The Crusty Demons of Dirt and things like that, where, you know, this explosion of this culture of action sports, you know, that was, what, mid-90s when that all came out, when I was a kid, and it just got bigger and better, and uh, yeah, turned into a career somehow. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I understand that you're also you do athlete athlete events and marketing manager at Freestyle Motocross World Championship, oh. and also you're an athlete manager at Invert Management. Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, it it's funny, you know. It's good that you've got the this leadership podcast. So, I I left high school. My my dad always said, "Go get an education because there's no money on the farm." That is absolutely for certain. And, uh, you know, I want to do a few different things, but I, I wanted to be a physio. I couldn't really do that just the way the, the school system was. I had to be in the top 1%. And that wasn't happening. So I kind of backdoored a little bit. I did one diploma, advanced diploma in remedial therapies to go into physio. And I realized at the end of that, I was not interested in it. I was too sore to, to stand around. I, I didn't even have an interest anyway. And then dad said, right, you've got three options then. You get a job in what you've just learned. No. You come back and milk cows for the rest of your life. No. Or three, you go back to university. Right. Good idea. So then I thought, what do I actually, how do I want to live my life? That was kind of the question I had the second time. You know, when you leave school, it's like, what do I want to be? And nobody, unless you really know, most people don't actually know. And then I thought, well, how do I want to live my life? And, And I figured I'll have a lot of broken bones. It's hot in Australia all the time, especially in Brisbane. And I thought, well, when I'm 40 and I've got arthritis, all I will want to do is just sit down in an air-conditioned office. And I thought, who does that? Ah, business people. And that was it. <laughs> I went and did a business degree. But I didn't know what I was going to do in that business degree. I had no idea. And in that first year of university, you do, I think it was eight different subjects, and then you choose your majors after that. And marketing, that was, that was pretty easy. Went into the marketing lecture. It was pretty fun. It was kind of like the fun part of business. Fine. So I chose that one. And I chose management. I don't know why. It just, there was something about management that, I don't know, it just tickled my fancy just that little bit. So I did the, I did the education and I enjoyed it, but I was not interested in working at all. I figured by the time I'd done six and a half, seven years of university, I really wanted to ride my motorbike. And I thought, if I could live that long, like a university bum with not an awful lot of money and, you know, you know how, what it's like to live university. So uh, I thought, I'll, I'll try ride my motorbike for a living and I'll give myself one year. If I've done it for six and a half, I can do one more yeah. and actually enjoy it. And it worked out. From there, it was a couple of years down the line. Things worked out very well. And a good friend of mine said to me one day, well, he said to me a lot, actually, why don't I use those bloody degrees and diplomas that I'd spent six and a half years on? And I thought, well, I'm not interested because riding's a full-time job. You've got to train, you've got to ride, you've got to compete, you've got to perform. 
everything that goes around it. And then uh, in the end, I decided to do athlete management with two of the best. I didn't know at the time, and they didn't either. They would become two of the best riders in the world who were actually my friends as well. So it was just luck that it all kind of fell into place. So that's how I got into the, the management side with athletes, and that's where I created my business in management. I managed to convince my wife to quit her job and her career to uh, come and work with me and, and take all of the, the paperwork duties off of my desk so I could continue to ride and still continue to manage them, but then she would take over the, all the bits that I just had no time for. And so that was how Invert Management started. Yeah. The, the World Championships, that all... I, I, was, I rode an event at the World Championships. I was doing their TV. I was a judge. I was helping them with their marketing. I was helping with their press releases because it's a German company, but they're doing World Championships. So I was reading their press releases as a fan, as a rider, and as somebody who speaks English as a first language. And so I just jumped in and gave them a hand. And fast forward 15 years, I had a great career. Loved it. I loved performing all around the world, but I had a big crash. And the the two owners of this event series, Night of the Jumps, it's called, who I had worked for and the reason I'd lived here now in Europe, they asked me if I'd like to work for them. And I said, no. I said, thank you very much. It would be a dream job in 10 years' time, but I'm a writer. Six months went down the line. I still was still trying to learn to walk and they asked me again if I'd like to work and I said thank you I really appreciate the offer but maybe in 10 years and after one year I finally learned to walk again but I realized I probably wasn't riding professionally anymore yeah. so when they asked me the third time I didn't let that opportunity go this time I thought they're not going to ask again yes I will join and uh, it is a dream job but it came 10 years earlier than I expected wow and tell me, when you say learn to walk again, was that due to the yaks in your head and then you had to physically learn how to walk again? Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I did a show in Birmingham in England and it was a 10-day motorcycle expo and I'd done it one or two years prior, I think. And so I, I knew how the show went. It was a For me, it was a very easy show, but it's draining. We're in a, we're in a small arena. We do two or three shows a day, which is no problem. Getting up early, that part, definitely, I, I don't like. <laughs> uh, but the, the fumes from motorbikes, I think there were six or sometimes seven of us in this small area. Wow. We're doing shows, and the fumes get to you by the end of the 10 days of shows. You're just absolutely exhausted. It feels like you've been carbon monoxide poisoned almost. Anyway, I got to day eight. I thought I was fine, and turns out I was just tired. I made a mistake, and I was doing a backflip. And the one trick when I'm when I'm doing this backflip is to reach down for where you sit. Seat, sorry, where you sit on the bike, and we have a hole cut out under the seat. And so normally I would grab that. Unfortunately, I was doing this backflip. I missed the grab, and I was just hanging upside down under the motorbike. And that was it. I couldn't get back on. So I had a, a rude awakening when I hit the ground. Uh, wow. I, I managed to get up under a bit of duress. I just felt winded. But I got up, waved to the crowd. You know, it's the crowd kind of comes for the the spectacle. And if, if there's a crash, it's always 
a little bit that blood lust. I don't, I don't know. So I waved to the crowd. Yep, it was a bad crash, but I walked it off. It's okay. And uh, turns out I broke my back in a couple of places. That part didn't matter. The broken back part was fine. What happened was I broke my hip, but I didn't yeah. know about it for another six weeks. So I walked on broken hip, which was just absolute agony, but they kept telling me it was fine. So I thought I was fine. I was about to come back. I was supposed to ride in eight weeks and I could barely even stand up. And I thought, well, I was two weeks before this next tour to go back to England and I was considering, do I get somebody to kickstart the bike? If somebody can start the bike, I can physically sit on it and I could probably do a flip. I could probably do a couple of small tricks. It'll, it'll be enough. It'll be fine. I can I can get the job done. Anyway, I found out I'd broken my hip and then that spiraled into finding out how bad the injury really was. And so I had an experimental surgery, thankfully finding a great surgeon in Germany. And uh, so, yeah, I had to learn how to walk again. It took me about a year. So wow. that's... That, that, yeah, so that's what I mean. I, I was never planning to do what I do now. That was yeah. not on the cards. This came a lot faster than I thought. Yeah, and I think that's that's actually pretty true for the listeners. You know, just look, you may not think, well, some people might be thinking, oh, I need to prepare for something or I'm not ready yet. And oh. I don't think I don't think we are ever going to be ready for anything, right? So No, exactly right. And, and that's the, I'd say that's the best gift that I have out of, doing what I did. I think anybody who does any extreme sport or action sport, even if you go mountain bike riding or rock climbing or skydiving, where you have to face your mortality, and I had to do it every day, you don't take things for granted because anything can happen at any time. And I always prepared for that, but being prepared for it and going through it are still two very different things. Amazing. Amazing. Yep, and I think that even you know my medical scare of you know health scare and that I had too, right? It's sort of like sort of gives you a big wake up call, but you were doing it just every day. It was giving you a wake up call to think about things too, right? So, big big thing. That's it. Mm, yeah, mm. Well, well, that was the main reason why I took this step at the start. I'd been to university, done my six and a half years of education. I know I can do a lot of other things, even if I don't want to do what I studied. I that part's not the problem, but I knew I had a good backup plan. So then I had that feeling like, okay, let's let's just try and ride a motorbike for a living because I know I've got a fallback plan. If something goes wrong, if everything goes absolutely horribly, I'll work it out. It's fine. And a lot of people I find out kind of only plan on one thing uh. and when it goes wrong, then they are stuck. And, and it's great if you if you go all in on something. I completely, I'm all for that, especially in business or if you're entrepreneur or whatever it might be, go all in. But I also do like having a backup plan. Yep, absolutely. That's great. That's a good idea, though. I mean, I think you're right. And have a backup plan. Go all in. Pretty good. We, we won't get into this, what I'm about to say, because I actually applied for physiotherapy school as well and didn't get in. Normally in New Zealand, you don't normally get in the first year that you apply. Yeah. You might have to go a couple of times, two or three times. Uh, but this is going to be a bit weird too because we think about things in life and how things work. But I, I, I think they not. I think I know that they actually tended to take more of a female cohort in rather than male, and it was very dominant yeah. female. And there might have been if there was ten like, as a number I'm choosing, nine would be female, one would be oh, male. Oh wow! Yeah, that kind of thing. Oh. Or two would be male. So it was really, huh. really quite interesting. That was many, many years ago, and so uh. I'm sure it's, may have, it's changed now. But yeah, it was really interesting to see. 
Anyhow, well, that's something I'm not going to get into anymore right now. <laughs> hey, um, so so that management side, that you've already sort of shared with us how you got into sort of leadership. Was there any other way that you got into leadership as well? Anything else you want to share on that? Yeah, well, I mean, like I said to you at the start, I'm going to be a little bit different than most people, I suppose, because I, I've never worked a real job and I've never had employees in the traditional sense. I have my own business. I work on, I'm in the gig economy. Yeah. Every show I ever did, that was a gig. When I left doing shows, I was still doing gigs. If I was a, if I was a moderator for an event, if I was commentating a live stream, if I was doing a TV hosting job, they're all gigs. Then when I fell into the world championship work with Night of the Jumps, well, then I've actually got to manage the riders who I was before. And I'm managing my friends. That, and that's a tough one. And, and I think the lucky, this is a little bit of a sidestep, but the lucky part or the reason I think it worked so well was when I was riding, I would always try and do my absolute best in terms of the industry. I always thought of, not just myself, but we're all in this together. You know, we're not rushing and trying to steal jobs from somebody else. So I always kept a very high standard for myself and I always kept it for everybody else. So then when, when I moved into this position, at least those riders that I was competing with, that I was riding with, or I was just simply friends with, there was at least that mutual respect that when I came into the position of getting them on board, bringing them to these events or inviting them or finding out what they need, they knew there was that level of respect that I, that I had a high standard, that I didn't want to, you know, bring in the cheapest guy or give them a low ball offer as well. I mean, they've, they've got to risk their lives to put on a show for yeah. a paying crowd. So our boss technically is the 10, 20, 50,000 people in the crowd. That's our boss. How do we keep our bosses happy that they come back year after year and keep watching the show? So I manage all of the writers. I then work between, let's say, our TV team, our production team, our technical team, all of that, it all intertwines. So where there's only a few of us actually in the office at an event, there's probably about 100 to 200 people per event, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on the level of the show. So, yeah, it's managing massive. riders, yeah, it is. It's... Managing riders, I'd say it's like herding cats. Fair. Uh, you've got egos, you've got, like I said, people who risk their lives as a job who want to win, you've got competitors, yeah. there can be a lot of demands, there can be some guys who have no demands, there can be... An absolute myriad of different people involved in this organization. Let's talk about the TV team. You've got creatives. You've got the organization who want to set up. A whole show has to be set up within about 12 to 24 hours, depending on the venue. They can't muck around with creatives. They can't muck around with athletes who are dilly-dallying around or whatever it might be. So there's a lot of different people in this organization and to keep everybody focused on their job and not stepping on toes, it's, tell you what, it's it's an interesting job. I bet. I bet. That's really, really cool. And uh, I like what you said here about working in the gig economy, for sure. That's good. But you had that high standards. So in other words, listeners, what I'm hearing here is that Steve's talking about his brand and how he built his brand and throughout the time and throughout his career, that later on it came came out as well that it was he had that respect and they had respect for him. 
In other words, he came to the role doing it, and he knows what it was like. Why? Because he's one of them. He's been there before, and that's really, really important. What we've done in uh, where I was working, we were bringing people from the business side into HR with business experience. Why? Because when you're sitting with another business leader, straight away you had credibility. Straight away you knew whether they were bullshitting you or not. You just knew and you could tell. And so it was a lot different than being somebody who may have come out of university, has got a little experience around HR and trying to work with some senior exec. Totally different kind of dynamic. That's absolutely right. In an, in the in the corporate world, that would have to be pretty much the perfect analogy because, yeah, right. I I basically fell into HR. That's my role as HR in a way. I'm an yeah. athlete manager. I'm I'm HR. So I had to come with that credibility, otherwise they would see through the bullshit. And you know what? I that didn't come. It was not easy either because the reason there was a couple of things. See, you might like this one when when Jurgen Marco both asked me to work for Night of the Jumps. They did ask me twice and I said no, which it killed me to say no because I just wanted to say yes, but I knew from experience when I tried to do too many things, I kept crashing on my bike. And I just, I didn't want to put them out. I didn't want any expectations. So I kept, I said no. When I finally said yes, I actually put them into an interview rather than them putting me into the because they knew what I could do. They knew who I was. They knew everything. I wanted to know why they did this. Why, why after 20 years, are they still running one of the longest running event series in our sport? What kept them interested? Why was it for money or was it for passion? And I wanted to find that out. And of course, it was for passion. That's That was number one. That's why I said yes. Number two, I said in my experience as a rider and also as a fan, I'm only a rider because I was a fan first, I could see the sport needed to change and it had yeah. to be monumental change. And were they up for changing their entire business, their entire event strategy, the world championships? How do they change all of that? Were they up for it? And would they take any of my ideas on board? And they said, absolutely. So that was it. I was I was going to join. Wow. So we got to work pretty quickly. In the first year, we made a lot of changes. A lot of them stuck. But even being the rider, even having the respect, even like I stayed with all of these guys, with the World Championship riders. I stayed at their houses, slept in their spare bedrooms. We ride together, whatever it was. We are friends. But when it came to changing prize money and how the... The start fee and the prize money structure went well. That that did push the the envelope just a little bit too much, and we worked on it for about six months, working with all the different guys from all around the world. And in the end, I felt okay. We're we're changing how the competition runs. We're changing how the points work. We're changing how the judging works. We're changing social media. We're changing the television. Where we were changing everything. And then when you start changing the money, everybody kind of took that step back and went, oh, 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 hang on. Yeah. So we thought, yeah. okay, let's let's put the brakes, let's pump the brakes on that one, which was very interesting for me personally to experience that on the other side. But it is something that after a year or two, actually most guys came around to it and went, oh, that was a good idea. But at that time, it just wasn't going to work. So no. yeah, it's... It's quite funny, you know, like I said, you can come in with credibility from from a business operator point of view into HR, but I'm sure they also have their 
their own issues when they get down to it as well. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, they're all humans, and humans don't mind change happening as long as it doesn't happen to us, right, to ourselves personally, and that's that's the thing. Hey, Steve, um, that's it. the question I've got for you now is around, this person could be alive from history. Who's your favourite leader and why? Huh. I, I've been trying to think of an answer for that, and I, oh. I can't I can't really pick anyone. I can't pick one person, to be honest. I, I'd probably say I'm going to go very, very niche. Nobody's going to know who this is from my sport. I'd say somebody like Travis Pastrana. I don't know if you've ever heard of the name, but he is... He was like the wonder kid at the very start of the sport 25-something years ago. He then realized the position that he was in with ESPN, X Games, everything like that, and he created his own brand, and it just started on videos. That then turned into one of probably the most influential shows that has ever been around in our sport called Nitro Circus. And that just, it changed the landscape. And he's not scared to continue coming up with crazy ideas, different events, different jumps, different stunts. He's, he's just one of those guys that it doesn't matter if there's a lot of hard work involved, if there's physical risk on the line, if there's financial risk on the line, he would still take the bet if he knew that it was, if he was able to do it or if it was the right thing to do. So yeah. nobody will know who he is, but maybe just go Google the guy, Travis Pastrana. If you want to watch somebody jump out of an aeroplane without a parachute, he's the guy who did it. I think he might have even been first to do wow. that. Wow. Now, if you two were to sit on a park bench somewhere having a coffee, would there be a question you might want to ask Travis? Oh, God. A question? It's funny. I, I know the guy, but yeah. I, again, I'm a fan of him. I've seen what he's done. I'd probably say, what else could he do? Yeah. Because he's he's only about a year or two older than I am. And, uh, you know, so he must be about, I'd say he's 40. If he's not 40, he must be very, very close. Is there something that he wanted to do and never did in his prime? Because we've seen him absolutely, he, he helped invent a sport. Not that he changed it. He helped to create and invent something. But I'm sure there was more going on in the back of his mind. I bet. Probably, I would say another name, and I'm sure everybody probably puts this name out there. I'm not going to say I'm a huge fan, but Elon Musk, if I want to talk, you know, mainstream. But the reason I'd say Elon's name is more, how does he balance, how does he balance his ambition with the time that he has in the day? Obviously, money is not a huge issue. But it still is an issue. Whether you're the richest man in the world or in the top 5,000, you still need to find funds to pay for things that you want to do. Now, his his ambition is much higher than all of us. Well, not higher than all of us, but he's able to achieve a lot more than most other people ever will in their lives. How does he balance that ambition? How does he say, I'll choose this project over that project? I've only got a few billion dollars for something. I'm going to go blow it on Twitter. Uh, no, I, even then, I'm not even going to say that's blowing it. I, I don't know what his big scheme overall for Twitter is, if, but I have heard him talk about WeChat, and I've been in China a fair bit. If he could build something like WeChat, fantastic. WeChat's massive Maybe in every, China, eh? It's It's huge. Yeah. And, and I don't know how old WeChat is, but I remember being in China. We've always had a world championship round there every year for the last, I don't know, 10 years or something. 
And I was there before that as well. But every year we would go back to Shenzhen. And Shenzhen, I think 40 years ago, was only a small farming kind of... It was farmland. That's all it was. And then the Chinese government decided they wanted to create this special economic zone. And in 40 years, it's one of the biggest cities in the world. And it just continues to impress me year after year how big it gets. And, uh, you know, I just wonder, though, what, what kind of change you can see with that much money that, okay, we do this or we do that. It's, it's unbelievable. Mm, amazing. Now, you mentioned change a couple of times already, but the show here is called Leadership is Changing. When I mentioned that title, what does it mean for you? Um, I'd, I'd like to think that, well, it's, everything is changing, isn't it? And COVID really sped that up. So yep. that's perfect that you've got leadership in changing, is changing in the, the title of it. It's funny. Everybody's kind of caught up to how I've lived my, again, I'm going to say working life in inverted commas. I've always worked from home or from a laptop and a phone. That's all I've ever done. My One of my best friends, Jason, who owns this IT company who fixed my emails, who I was just telling you about earlier before at Lakes Networking in Australia, he he started sponsoring me at the very start. He He hated that I did what I did, but he always supported it by giving me laptops, setting up my emails, building my website, kind of allowing me to be as mobile as I could be from about 2006 or 2007, something like that. And COVID has finally shown the rest of the world how I live. So it's been quite funny to see everybody working from home and and getting into it. And, oh, now they've got to go back to the office. And uh, I guess that certain amount of dread that, that, that comes along with that. But the leadership that goes into that, that's the hard part. But actually, I would even say coming back to Night of the Jumps, when I joined them five years ago, so a couple of years before COVID started, I was the first person to join their business, which is based in Berlin, but I'm living four hours south. So I was the first person out of the office. After about six months, I think Frank the Tank, who's our logistics manager, he comes from another part of Germany, you know, about an hour away from me. And then he said, you know what, I think I want to go back home and you know i can work from home yeah so the leadership in in the company in the organization had to realize well do we need to be in an office in the center of berlin can we do something from home well then that that started the whole process and before covid even kicked in i think we were all pretty much working from home so that was a monumental shift for them as well 20 years that they'd been doing these events and then I came along as like this little bit of a wild card in the middle of it and just seeing how they reacted to the work from home opportunities and how much more we got done it was fantastic and and they took it on board they didn't even or maybe they thought about it in the, in the background but they never let on how it could affect the business they just went yep that seems like it's better for everybody everybody's happier why not do it there you go, listeners. Congratulations. You've finally caught up to Steve, and the rest of the world has caught up with you, which is good. Yeah. And um, Travis, if you're listening to this episode, I'm sure Travis will be listening to it. What else could you do, Tra- Travis? That's a really cool question for Steve to ask you. Steve, we've covered off the other questions actually quite a bit already that you've talked about things, but there's one question I do want to ask you, and that is, we're living in a world that's getting faster and faster, and I'm sure even in your industry as well, it's getting a lot faster. Technology, data, the whole lot. Uh, how... 
for a leader, manager today, what can they do to make sure that they're successful in a fast-paced, ever-changing world? Keep your keep your mind open. No. Or always say yes. No. Always look for the opportunity. That, that that's the only way, isn't it? You know, yep. you can only you can only look forward to change, even if you don't look forward to it. Change is coming whether you like it or not. Yep. So you have to be open to it. You have to know that the world is changing so fast at the minute, and it feels like it's getting faster. Yeah. As long as you've got an open mind, you'll have a good business. And nice. if you don't have an open mind, you probably won't be in business for much longer. It's 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 almost at that point, I feel like, depending on the industry. I mean, there's going to be industries that will continue to do the same things over and over for a very, very long time, and they'll be just fine. But most aren't. We're, I think everybody's in a very fast-paced world, and if you don't keep an open mind, you'll be left behind, and... You might be going to work for somebody else. Yeah, very good. Some really good points there. Hey, Steve, look, thanks for joining me in today's session. We've covered off the questions that I always ask my guests, roundabout way, different ways that we've done it today. And the reason I wanted to get you on the show today was because you're coming from a background that's really quite cool. You know, out there, there's the thrill, there's this the stuff, the extreme side of things that you get to work on, but also you get to do that with others and lead them as well, manage them, which is really, really great. So that's really, really cool. Hey, if our listeners are wanting to get hold of you, where should they go? Uh, I think you said you've already got the social media links up there. Just jump on LinkedIn. That's probably, especially for this podcast and the listeners that would be on here, probably LinkedIn is the best one. I wear too many hats. I do far too many things with too many different projects. So LinkedIn is about the the single point that kind of sums everything up. Yeah, that's very good. All right. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure having you on as a guest. Thank you very much, mate. I'm so so glad to be on and it was great to have a chat. Awesome. There you go, listeners. What else can you do? And are you going to be willing to put your hand up and take the opportunity and go for it? Thanks for joining us. Uh, until next time, bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world.